Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 15, we'll be looking at Mark 15, 40, then through to chapter 16, verse 8. But we'll begin in Mark 15, 40. And as you're turning there, uh, we'll be dismissing any of our children who will be participating in our children's class this morning. So you guys, if you uh, are participating in that, you can make your way to the back room and our volunteers will be there to greet you and to uh, join with you in a time of instruction in God's Word back in that classroom. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 40. So let me read our scripture for us this morning, and then we'll pause as we do every week and ask for the Lord's help as we come before the truth of His Word. So Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger, And Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy it is to gather on this Easter morning. Father, we know that uh, the fact that we're here this morning is a gift of grace to us, bought by Jesus on the cross. 
And so, Father, we acknowledge even right now, this very moment, that we are only here together because of the mercy and grace you have already shown us. Father, we are thankful for the righteous life of Jesus Christ that stands in the place of everyone who trusts in his name. We're thankful for the death of Christ where he paid the debt we could have never paid, where he took the wrath, your wrath on himself that we may not have to face it for all eternity, but instead can experience forgiveness and joy forevermore in your presence. And of course, Father, we are thankful for the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are thankful that because of his resurrection, him being the first fruits of more to come, we will one day join him in that glorious resurrection. It is that living hope that we are looking to this morning. And so, Father, because of all that Christ has done, you have, uh, by your grace to us, sent your spirit to dwell in all who trust in him. And so, Father, we ask you to do again this Sunday what we ask every single Sunday. And that is that you would be at work in us by the power of your spirit who dwells in us through the truth of your word. And that you would convict us of sin. That you would increase our love, faith, and affection for Jesus Christ that we would be drawn to rejoice in the resurrection this morning and that we would be changed by that rejoicing. So Father, we pray that you would use your word to mold us and to conform us into the likeness of Christ this morning. And so Father, I pray that you would be with me, that you would allow me to only speak what is true of you, that you would guard my lips this morning and that you would be at work in us for the glory of your name and the good of your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the reality is from day one of the resurrection, from the very beginning, Satan was already at work to cast doubts in the minds of humanity about that reality. From day one, we we see that in uh, Matthew's gospel uh, right after the resurrection. Matthew chapter 28 verses 12 through 15 say this, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. This is the, 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 the Jewish leadership of the day. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you, the soldiers, out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. Now listen to this. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is what Matthew tells us, that from day one they were already trying to sow doubt among the people about whether this actually could have happened. And Satan has continued that work into today. You know, it's interesting if you look at even secular historical scholars. There's a few crazy ones out there, but even the secular historical scholars almost universally believe that Jesus existed and that Jesus died on the cross, that he was crucified. That's almost universally agreed on, even by non-Christian historical scholars. They all agree on his death, but the difference comes with his resurrection. That's what people doubt. That's what places a question mark in the minds of these scholars. You see, that's what Satan wants to cast doubt in the minds and hearts of people. 
You see, if confidence in the resurrection can be destroyed, then our faith is destroyed. It's what the Bible tells us in the passage Chris just read a little bit earlier from 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, which says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. The word vain means empty, useless, pointless. If Christ has not been raised, we need to get up and go home. That's what that verse says to us. There's no point in us being here this morning if Christ has not been raised. Everything I'm saying is pointless and futile and vanity. You being here is futile and vain if Christ has not been raised. But, but if Christ has risen from the grave, then everything changes. Everything changes if Christ has been risen. If that happened, Jesus can no longer be ignored. It changes everything because, listen to God's word, his resurrection demonstrated that he is the son of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact, because Jesus is God of very God, it wasn't even possible for the grave to hold him to begin with. That's what Acts tells us, Acts chapter 2, verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It wasn't even possible for the grave to contain Jesus Christ. The resurrection also, of course, was a demonstration that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was accepted by God. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That his resurrection demonstrated that God had accomplished our sanctification or had accomplished our justification through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, it is the historical fact of the resurrection that is essential to the gospel story. It is the historical fact that ought to fill us with this living hope that we just sang about. You see, Christianity is not based upon some mythical fable. Either Jesus was actually, physically, supernaturally raised in history, or he wasn't. Our whole faith hinges on an actual historical fact. And it is that fact that we are to rejoice in this morning. So what I want us to do is simply hear from Mark this morning about the glorious reality of this resurrection and for us to see our faithful resurrected Savior. And I just remind you the context into which Mark would have written this there was doubt about the resurrection among the people of his day, right? We just read from Matthew how those rumors had been spread to the very day that they were writing. And Mark, one of the reasons Mark and the other gospel writers wrote what they wrote was to prove the reality of the resurrection. So let's just listen to Mark, prove the reality, rejoice in the faithfulness of Jesus, and let's be astonished together with Mark and the women who appeared at the tomb that day. So I want us to see three simple truths about the resurrection of Jesus in this passage. Number one, number one, the resurrection is a historic reality. The resurrection is a historic reality. Number two, 
The resurrected king is a faithful savior. The resurrected king is a faithful savior. And number three, the resurrection is astonishing. It is astonishing. But let's start with the resurrection is a historic reality. Let's begin there in verses 40 and 41 where we started when we read scripture earlier. Mark 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting in Mark's gospel how this flow of the narrative works because it seems like, it feels like, if you're just reading through Mark's gospel, that verses 40 and 41 is an, it's an interruption to the flow because you have Jesus dying just before this in chapter 15 where the centurion confesses that truly this man was the Son of God there in verse 39. And then in verse 42, you move to his burial. But right here in the middle of this, you had this recounting of the fact that these women who were named were gathered around the cross where Jesus was crucified. And not just a generic group of women, but yes, many other women, but also specific named women. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome, these very specific women. And it says, these along with many others follow Jesus. You see that there in verse, uh, verses 40 and 41. They followed him and ministered to him. In other words, you know, often I think we picture Jesus walking around with just the 12 disciples. But that wasn't the case. There were lots of other people with him everywhere he went. And verses 40 and 41 are telling us that these women were part of that group. So, so why does Mark bother to tell us that here? Right? Everything in God's word is intentional. So why does he tell us that here between the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus? Well, the reason he tells us is because these women were important and vital eyewitnesses to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, for the resurrection to be established as a historical fact, you need all three of those things to happen. Right? If Jesus isn't dead, then he didn't rise. In fact, there have been, uh, uh, you know, a lie spread about that, that, well, he didn't rise from the dead. He wasn't actually from the grave. He wasn't actually dead. He just kind of passed out. They laid him in the tomb. They thought he was dead, but he really wasn't. And then he just kind of came back to life as anybody would who wasn't actually dead, right? So that's one of the lies that had been spread. But we'll know Mark is saying these women were there and they saw it. They saw it happen. They were there for his death. They were there for his burial. And they were there for his resurrection. And he gives us their names for a reason. Mark's gospel was probably written, there's a little bit of debate about that, but the late 50s, early 60s, and when I say 50s, I don't mean 1950, I mean 50s, right? The, the 50s, just 50, right? That's when Mark's gospel was written, about 20 to 25 years after Jesus rose from the dead. These women were probably still alive, and Mark is saying to the people reading this gospel, go ask them. I'm not making this up. Named specific people saw this happen. 
You can go talk to them if you want to. They were there. They saw what went down. So they were there. Remember, many of the disciples, all of the disciples fled from Jesus. But they were there, and they saw him die on the cross. And they were there when he was laid in the tomb. Do you see that in verse 47? It says, these two Marys saw where he was laid. They watched his body be placed in the tomb. And then, of course, they were there. They were the first ones to arrive at the tomb when the angel announced, he's not here, he's risen. They saw every step of the process. They saw his death, they saw his burial, and they saw his resurrection. And what makes this even more astonishing is, in Mark's day, in this culture, the the eyewitness testimony of women would not have been held very highly. They were considered second-class citizens. In other words, if Mark would have wanted to really drive home his point and make up a story, he would have never put women in these positions. He just wouldn't have done it. And so it's one way that, that, that we can increase our confidence in the truth of God's word that he just states historical fact. It was women who saw it happen. Go talk to the women. They were there. Listen to what they have to say. They have truth to tell you. That's why Jesus tells them to go tell the disciples what has happened. So you have that evidence of the actual historical burial, and they saw his resurrection. But not only are the witness of the not only is the witness of the women essential, but also we have the witness of Joseph of Arimathea. You see that there in verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Matthew's gospel calls him a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea. And it says, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. You see, it took courage for Joseph of Arimathea to do this because Jesus, the very man of whom he was a disciple, had just been executed. And Joseph of Arimathea is willing to stick out his neck and go and say, connect himself to Jesus. Say, I'm one of his. Can I have his body? Can I have his body so that we can lay him in the tomb? And it'll be in my tomb. We'll put him there so that we can respect his death and care for his body well. But what's interesting in this conversation between Joseph and Pilate, we really see Mark, the the author of this gospel, driving home the fact that Jesus was actually dead, right? Just just hear how Mark flows with these two verses in verses 44 and 45. The word dead or died is used three times. It's repeated over and over again. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already, what, died, Why? Because people didn't normally die as quickly as Jesus died on the cross. It normally was a much longer, drawn-out process. And so Pilate's surprised that it's already happened. So he summons the centurion, another witness, and he asks the centurion who was standing at the cross, is he dead? Is he actually dead? And of course, the centurion confirms that he was. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So the word dead or die is repeated over and over again to prove to us he was dead. 
Jesus was actually dead. And not only that, Mark intentionally uses the word corpse in verse 45. It's not just the word body. Earlier it said Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus, but here the body of Jesus is referred to as a corpse. That word is sometimes also translated carcass. A dead, lifeless, limp body with no life left in it. This is astonishing. Jesus, the Son of God, who calmed the storm with the command of his voice, and fed a few thousand with uh, fed thousands with a few loaves, and raised the dead with the authority of his voice, is now a lifeless, limp corpse hanging on a cross. And I say that not to be gruesome, but to emphasize what Mark wants to emphasize: Jesus was, without question, dead. He has to be carried as a limp corpse, to the tomb. Verse 46, Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Joseph delivered him there and rolled the stone against the entrance. And again, you see there in verse 47, the two Marys saw all of it happen. Now, the reason I'm taking time to establish that Jesus actually died this morning, right? You you guys are probably thinking this is supposed to be about the resurrection. Why are we talking so much about the fact that Jesus was actually dead? Well, because talking about this death, that he was actually dead, is not to bring sorrow upon sorrow. No, it's to magnify and to increase the glories of the resurrection, that his, in his actual death, he defeated death. He rose from the grave. He was actually dead. But not only that, right? Not only that, it reminds us that we too one day will die. And if Jesus didn't actually die and just kind of was resuscitated, right? Just came back from kind of being passed out, then we have no hope of the resurrection, So we need to remember that Jesus actually died because one day all of us are also going to die. And the Bible says to us that because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we also will be raised. We also will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, again, we read it earlier, tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. That word first fruits means he's the first one, but there's a lot more to come. There's more to follow. We're going to follow him in this glorious resurrection. So Jesus was actually dead. One day we're going to actually be dead. He actually rose from the grave. And one day, brothers and sisters, because of the power of his resurrection, we will actually rise from the grave and be given our glorified bodies. And we will dwell with him for all eternity. This is our only hope. This is our living hope. We will one day be resurrected and be full of joy in the presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity. So this brings me to the second truth of the resurrection. It it actually happened, truth number one. It is a historical fact. Truth number two, the resurrected king 
is a faithful Savior. Look there with me, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. So the Sabbath was passed. I just remind you that the Sabbath was Saturday. So Jesus was in the tomb throughout all 24 hours of, of Saturday there. They, uh, they had to rest on the Sabbath, so the women could not do the work of preparing Jesus' body. So that's why Joseph wanted to get the body down, get him in the tomb, so that they could come once the Sabbath was complete and prepare his body. So the Sabbath is passed. The, the Marys come, and uh, verse 1 of chapter 16 says they're bringing spices so they might go and anoint him. They want to honor his body. Listen, the women are coming not expecting to find an empty tomb. Like, you, you, we have to understand that. Not only were they not expecting an empty tomb, they were going to prepare the body to lay in the tomb forever. Do you see the distinction? They were going to prepare his body to be there permanently. There was no expectation from them that Jesus wasn't going to be there. They were going to prepare his body just like any other body would be prepared with these spices so that they could go and anoint him. And very early, verse 2, on the first day of the week, Sunday, on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, listen to verse 3. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me to, to think about this for a minute. They go... Verse 3 says, and on their way, what they are most concerned about is who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. That's the topic of their conversation, right? That's the challenge they think they're going to face that day, right? How in the world are we going to get this huge stone rolled away from this tomb so that we can get in and prepare Jesus' body? This is the topic of their conversation. So what's interesting, that's what they're talking about. Then verse 4 says that they're kind of walking toward the tomb, and they look up, and they, seem that they see that the stone had been rolled back. So think about this for a moment, Right? They're, the biggest concern they had that Sunday is, can we get the stone out of the way? And they look up, and their day is made, right? They're happy. They're, they're satisfied, right? Their greatest concern in that moment, in their minds, has been met. The stone's moved. We, we, we wasted time worrying about that, being filled with anxiety. Somebody's already gotten it out of the way for us. We're going to have an easy day getting ready to anoint Jesus' body and get it ready to lay in the tomb forever. But they did not even yet begin to understand what kind of excitement was going to fill their hearts when they stepped into that tomb. So what does verse 5 say happens when they walked in? Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So this young man, of course, is an angel. This is a description of an angel. He's sitting there in a white robe. And it's interesting that it says he was uh, uh, sitting on the right side, right? That seems very specific, right? Why, why does Mark tell us that? Does he mean the angel's right side or the women's right side, right? That could be a confusing way, but that's, that's not the point. The point is he was sitting to the side because the way these cave-like tombs worked is the stones rolled away. It's a cave-like tomb. There would have been a flat area where they would have laid the body. And the angel's sitting off to the side. This young man is sitting off to the side so that he can point to the empty spot. 
so that he can draw the attention of the eyes of the women and say, look right here, right next to me. He's not here. He's not here. I know you came to look for him, but he's not here. He has risen. And not only has he risen, right? You can, you can see the place that they laid him. He's not there, but not only that. Verse 7 Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, this is astonishing, right? If we reflect on this for a moment, it says, There, at the end of verse 7, there you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. Earlier in Mark, Chapter 14, verse 28, before Jesus died, he said, look, all of you are going to abandon me. You're going to flee. You're going to be terrified and afraid when the soldiers come to arrest me, and you're going to leave. But listen to me. After I rise from the grave, I'm going to go and wait for you. I'm going to be there waiting for you. Of course, they didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. They could not comprehend it. And yet here Jesus says to the women, tell them, Tell the disciples and Peter that, that, that Jesus is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Now let's just pause here for a moment and reflect on this. This is, brothers and sisters, the mercy and patience of Jesus on display. Jesus just defeated death. He had gone through the most excruciating suffering the human mind can imagine. Not just physically, where he was beaten to a bloody pulp on his back. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was punched. He was nailed to a cross. He had a crown of thorns shoved onto his head as he then suffocated on the cross, drawing his last breath. Not only that physical suffering... He also took the wrath that all who would believe in him deserved. He took them on himself and drank the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. That was the most intense suffering we can imagine. The, the physical suffering pales in comparison as we talked about at our Good Friday service. This is what Jesus has endured. And in those most excruciating, painful moments of his life, his disciples were nowhere to be found. They ran away. Peter denied even knowing him. Not once, not twice, three times. So what is Jesus' message now that he has defeated death, now that he is the victorious one? What is his message for those disciples who could not run away from him fast enough? What does he say to these ragtag, weak, failed disciples? Go tell them I'm waiting for them. I'm waiting for them. And he names Peter. This is, this is the angel saying, especially Peter. Look, he denied me. 
but I prayed for him, right? Jesus told us, he told Peter, I'm going to pray for you that your faith won't fail. And so he says to the women, be sure and tell Peter, I'm waiting for him. Tell them to come find me. I'm going to be there just like I said I was. Look, Jesus, Jesus made a promise to his disciples. He made the promise before they ran away. He made a promise before they rejected him in terms of fleeing away from him. He made a promise to them in Mark 14, 28. He said he would be there waiting for them and not even death could keep Jesus from keeping his promises, brothers and sisters. Jesus is a faithful, promise-keeping Savior. He was arrested, beaten, mocked, suffered, nailed on a cross, died, and laid in a tomb, and he still kept his promise to his people. Jesus is absolutely trustworthy. He will always do what he says he's going to do. Listen, there are a thousand things that can keep you and me from keeping our word. It's why the Bible tells us to say Lord willing when we talk about in the future tense. Because you and I have zero control over the future. But not Jesus. He has perfect control over all things and nothing can keep him from keeping his promises to his people and he proved it through the resurrection. You and I have no more excuses for doubting the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. You see, it's tempting. It's tempting to think that in the end our sin and failures are going to keep us from him. Right? It's tempting to think that. It would be tempting for the disciples to think there is no way Jesus is going to be waiting for us. Why would he want to have anything to do with us? But he made a promise, and he fully intends to keep it. I mean, think about it, right? While the disciples, in the very moment the disciples were running away from Jesus, getting as far away from him as they could, Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for their sins. That's what he was doing. Right? So do you think that he would take God's wrath for the sins of the disciples and then rise from the grave just to turn around and berate them for how weak and helpless they were? It's not how Jesus operates, brothers and sisters. Do you think he bore God's wrath in your place for the sins, for, for the wrath you deserved for your sins just so he can make your life miserable? And hold your sins over your head and condemn you every day? No. No, he died for you and he rose for you. And therefore, Romans 8.32 says to us that he will not hold back one single eternally glorious good thing from you. Listen to what Romans 8.32 says. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave you Jesus, if the only begotten son of God was willing to lay down his life on the cross, if that's what the father gave to you, that which nothing greater can be given, do you really think he's going to hold something else good back from you that you need for all eternity? That's what Paul is saying in Romans 8.32, and that's what's on display here in Mark chapter 16. 
He died for the disciples. He died for their sins. So he's not going to reject them. He's redeemed them. So he's going to be waiting for them. And listen, he is waiting for you this morning. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is an open invitation to every person in this room. You have not done anything worse than what the disciples did when they rejected Christ and ran away from him. But he's here and he's waiting. He died for your sins. He rose for your justification if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, this is a historical reality. He is a faithful Savior, and therefore we ought to be astonished at what Christ has accomplished. So let's look at this final point. The resurrection is astonishing. Look there in verse 8 with me. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This word astonished, if you read Mark's gospel, is, is a repeating theme of the gospel. In fact, earlier in Mark chapter 7, verse 37, it says, uh, And they were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were blown away by the power of Jesus. They were astonished beyond measure. Everywhere Jesus went, the people in Mark's gospel were astonished. He uses that word numerous times. They are amazed. They are in all of him. So it's appropriate, of course, that when the women hear about the resurrection, they will, in fact, tremble with astonishment. But let's think about this word choice that Mark uses here. They trembled. They were so overwhelmed with excitement and in all of what had happened, their bodies started shaking. Right? It's like they could feel their heart pounding in their chest. That there's no way this is possible. How could it be? Jesus is alive. Right? They didn't know what to do with themselves. They were trembling with astonishment. It seized them. They were not even in control of their own bodies in that moment. They were so overwhelmed. They were, in fact, so overwhelmed that it's like they couldn't speak in that moment. They couldn't say anything to anyone. You know how it's like this, you want to talk and you can't. It's just, you, you don't know what to do with yourself. This is how the women felt in that moment. Now, of course, eventually they spoke, right? Eventually they bore witness to the resurrection to the disciples, they were faithful. They did obey what the angel asked them to do. But in this moment, they were overwhelmed, trembling with astonishment. Now, Mark ends his gospel this way because he's calling on us, those who read this gospel, he's calling on us to share this astonishment. You see, it's, it's easy it's easy in America in particular, right? Where if, if you were raised in the church or even if you just attended church a little bit growing up, you kind of heard the story of the resurrection. 
Now, not everybody has. Now, I'm not assuming everybody in here knows the story. I mean, there was one Easter when I was in a big box store and people were looking at the Easter eggs and, and the chocolate display and I was a little way down the aisle and they said, what is all this about anyway? What are we, what are we even celebrating at Easter? So I'm not assuming everyone knows it, but I'm just saying many do and it gets so normal, right? It gets so routine that we forget how astonishing it really is. That a man who was beaten to a bloody pulp and laid in the grave rose. And not just any man, the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us and willingly laid down his life so that he could rise again. He actually rose from the grave. You see, in fact, in fact, it's so easy to get caught up in our weekly routines if you're a Christian and if you regularly go to church. It's so easy to get caught up in our, in our routines that we forget the whole reason we gather on Sunday. The whole reason Christians gather on the first day of the week and not the historical Sabbath, which was Saturday, the reason we gather on Sunday is because that's the day Jesus rose from the grave. Our whole calendar, if you're a believer, is based on the resurrection. Every single Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, brothers and sisters. But it becomes routine for us. And I'm not pointing fingers at you. I'm talking about me too, right? We forget these things. But every single Sunday, we ought to come into this room not only remembering the life and death of Jesus Christ, but rejoicing that on the first day of the week, he defeated death. And he rose from the grave so that we could one day join him in this resurrection. It's why, it's why we gather. We didn't, we, historically Christians, didn't draw a day out of the hat and say, let's meet that day. There's a reason for it. It's why we gather the first day of the week. So by God's grace, let's make it our habit to gather each and every Sunday morning. And let's rejoice in the historical reality of the resurrection. Let's rejoice that we serve a faithful Savior. And let's be astonished that he defeated death so that we might live with him. This is good news, brothers and sisters, on this Easter Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. We thank you that it was not possible for the grave to hold him. We thank you that he victoriously rose from the dead. Father, I, I'm so thankful for the testimony of your word that, that, you, that you chose to reveal yourself and to speak truth to us so that we would not remain in darkness. You have, by the power of your spirit, awakened us to the truth of your word so that we may read these truths this morning and be convinced of the reality of the resurrection. So Father, I pray even right now, if there is anyone in this room who, who has struggled with doubt about whether or not Jesus rose from the grave, I pray that these words have been effectual in their hearts and that you would use these words to draw them to yourself, to open their eyes, to rejoice in this resurrection that we've been speaking of this morning. 
And Father, by your grace, I pray that you would help us as your people each and every Sunday to rejoice in this glorious truth that we serve a risen Savior, a living King, and we will one day join him in that resurrection for all eternity, worshiping him and our glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth, giving praise to the Lamb who was slain, who has defeated death. May praise be to his name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.